0: Well, good morning, Encounter Church. My name's Michael, one of the pastors here. I invite you to grab a copy of God's Word, one of the Bibles uh, there at your seat, or maybe the Bible that you brought with you, and turn in your Bible to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I will begin by reading verses 1 through 10, but Lord willing, we will be taking a skyline tour this morning of John chapters 20 and 21. Now, some of you who are familiar uh, with preaching, you might be a little bit fearful that your Easter ham is going to burn if I'm going to try to cover two chapters this morning. But I guess that's what you get when I don't preach for a few weeks. I just got to come and cover it all. But John chapter 20, you'll find that there in the New Testament of the Bible toward the back. If you hit books of the Bible like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll happen upon John. If you find the book of Acts, just stick it in reverse and you'll... See John chapter 20. John chapter 20, I'll read starting in verses 1, verse 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. It's fairly common at our house for the children to come and ask me or or my wife to come and watch something. Dad, come and see this. Check this out. Watch this. Just a week or so ago, they wanted me to come outside to watch this new flip that the oldest son has learned off of the swing set. It's a reverse flip. Maybe it's a triple sow cow. I'm not exactly sure what it was. But it's one of those flips there. It's like, come on, are you serious? You didn't do that. It's one of those flips that you just maybe wouldn't believe if you hadn't seen it for yourself. We use phrases often like this. Seeing is believing, right? Have you ever used that phrase or heard someone else use that phrase? Or maybe the the phrase, you won't believe it unless you see it. Or what about this phrase? I can't unsee what I just saw. We understand the power of the eyes. We understand the power of sight. Or what about when An event or an experience uh, happens and maybe we weren't there, but someone else who was there, they witnessed it firsthand. They come and they explain it to us, and our response is, Oh, now I see. Now I understand. See, the eyewitness of something that maybe you or I didn't see, the eyewitness provides for us a window through which we can see what really happened. We recognize and trust in the power of our sight. We trust in our ability to see. For that which we did not see or experience firsthand, we trust in those who did. And we trust in the testimony of those who were there and they saw it for themselves and they come back and they tell us all about it. I mean, let's face it, there are countless examples all throughout history of events that took place that neither you nor I were there. We weren't there, but others were there, and they saw it, and they wrote it down for us. And we believe it to be true. Well, the Easter holiday, Resurrection Sunday, confronts us every year with the question of whether or not we are going to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are confronted with this question, do I really believe in this resurrection that others saw that I didn't see with my my own eyes, but others saw with their own eyes, am I going to believe it to be true? In chapters 20 and 21 of the book of John, John the apostle presents to us eyewitness accounts of a resurrected Jesus. Maybe you noticed as I was reading, I was emphasizing the word saw or looked into because John uses that language. He uses those words. He repeats that in particular in these final two chapters. It would be an interesting exercise I'd encourage each of you to do to read through these last two chapters, to meditate on them and to highlight the various times that John does reference the power of the eyesight, the power of the eyes. You see, John has a way of helping us to see a risen Savior without seeing it firsthand. And he does so for the purpose of helping us to believe. In fact, if you look there in John chapter 20, flip over to verses 30 and 31, John writes for us. There in verse 30, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this this book. He says, but these are written. In other words, John says, those who have seen this, we've written it down. Why? Verse 31, but these are written that you may what? May believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is relying on the eyesight of others, the, first, the, the first-hand witnesses. In fact, later than in, in John's letters in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John begins his first letter with this, with, this, with this statement. He says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life." Now, it's also notable... As we'll see, we're going to make our way through chapters 20 and 21, and I promise I'll get you out of here before your Easter ham turns into Easter jerky. But what we're going to see is there's four eyewitness accounts, four, four accounts, almost four vignettes that, Paul, that, that John rather presents to us. Four different vignettes, four different situations where Jesus presents himself, and the people saw with their eyes. But John doesn't. But but what's what's helpful here is that John actually names them. I think it's notable that John also gives names of these eyewitnesses. I'm, for me personally, I'm often a bit skeptical when I'm reading a news article or an opinion piece that builds the story. Or someone who presents an opinion that builds their argument on unnamed sources. You might read in an article or an opinion piece a statement that is being made, that's presented, a statement that's being presented as fact. And rather than the author or the the editor giving the person's name, what do they refer to? They refer to, to that individual as an unnamed source. Well, if it's an unnamed source, I can't go and double-check the validity of the statement, can I? How do I know if what you're telling me is really true? If I don't know who the eyewitness was? John gives us the names of the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And so for John the apostle to, to write this and then for this to have been distributed, John is saying, go and ask these people. They're still living, he would have said. Go and ask them for yourself. Go and ask Mary. Go and ask the disciples. Go and ask Peter. Go and ask them and, and listen to their testimony of what they know is true. Now, something else that we're going to discover as we, as we jump in here shortly, we're going, we're going to discover uh, that, that these eyewitnesses are also experiencing Many of the struggles that you and I experience today, and these struggles that these eyewitnesses are going through at the point when Jesus presents himself to them, these are struggles that often stand as a barrier to us in believing in the resurrected Jesus. We're going to see Mary Magdalene who was overcome with grief. We're going to see the disciples who were hiding in fear, We're going to see Thomas, who was filled with doubt, and then finally, we'll look at Peter, who was plagued by failure. Now think about those four situations, grief, fear, doubt, and failure. Have you ever experienced any of those? Have you ever experienced grief? Have you ever experienced fear? Have you ever experienced doubt? Have you ever experienced failure? And have, have those experiences ever caused you to struggle to believe in the risen Savior? Well, this morning, this is a word for you if you've ever experienced that. If you're overcome with grief, my, my instruction to you, my plea with you is to believe in the risen Savior. This morning, if you are hiding in fear... My instruction to you is to believe in the risen savior. If you are filled with doubt. Believe in the risen savior. And if you are plagued by failure. Believe in the risen savior. That's the big idea this morning. Believe in the risen savior. You'll hear me repeat it throughout the sermon to take the eyewitness accounts that John has, taken, uh, ta- has, has preserved for us, to take those eyewitness accounts and then to transfer them into our lives and to say, yes, through their eyes and through this testimony, I too believe. So let's look first at Mary Magdalene, who had hope in her grief. Jesus, the risen Savior, gives us hope in our grief. Mary Magdalene, and this is what we saw. This is the, the, the verse. some of the verses that I started reading there in verses 1 through 10. The, the story of Mary continues on then into verse 11. We see that Mary Magdalene was present at the trial, the scourging, the crucifixion, and the burial of Jesus Christ. Mary was there when they laid Jesus's cold body in the tomb. Mary was filled with grief. She woke up on that, on that resurrection Sunday morning. On that, third, on that third day, Mary woke up filled with, with grief. And John records the account for us. And I invite you, go ahead, look there. Follow along with me, starting in verse 11, as I read through verse 18. John records, he says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to Look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. One angel at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Why, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Now thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him, and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. And what was the news? Here's the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. We see in this account that Mary's grief was compounded because as Mary shows up to the tomb and what she originally saw, the empty tomb, her grief was compounded because in her mind, the assumption was that Jesus' body had been moved. Maybe it had been stolen. Someone had taken it. Not recognizing Jesus when Jesus first spoke to her, The reason she didn't recognize it it was Jesus because she didn't have the slightest, she didn't even have the slightest suspicion that Jesus would be alive or that he was alive. She wasn't expecting this resurrection. And so what Mary responded, she, she banged with who she thought was the gardener to tell her, where did you put Jesus' body? And when Jesus called Mary's name, it was then that she realized who it was and Mary's grief was now replaced with great hope. You know, they say that our name is the sweetest sound to your own ear. The Lord tells us in Isaiah 43, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah speaks on behalf of the Lord, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. And you are mine. Jesus appearing first to a woman, a former outcast of society, and one who was filled with grief, gives us a glimpse into the heart of our risen Savior. Jesus met Mary in the midst of her her grief. Jesus called to Mary. He called her by name. And Mary's response was she turned And embrace Jesus. You just have to understand. I mean, can you picture the event? Jesus actually has to say, okay, Mary, you can let go now. (laughs) I'm not leaving you yet. It's interesting, isn't it, that she responds and she says, teacher. Right, in that moment, it would seem that we would respond. we We would address the person based upon how they were most significant to us or, or the need in that hour. And it seems that oftentimes when we're in the midst of grief, we have a lot of questions, don't we? We have a lot of questions. And you have to, under, you have to almost think that as Mary is trying to process the events of the crucifixion, the, the events of, of that Saturday, that day of certainly a great darkness in her soul, even as she's making her way as she's making her way to the tomb, thinking that she is just going to be preparing, caring for Jesus' body, you have to think all the questions that are going through her mind, and you have to wonder if maybe along the way, if, if Mary herself thought if only Jesus was here, he would be able to help answer my questions. And Jesus calls her name, Mary. And she turns to him. This past week, Margaret Bone, we all know Margaret. Margaret Bone shared with me a video testimony of her son, Joshua, who works way over on the island of Guam. A couple weeks ago, Joshua, Joshua was baptized there at the church that he's a part of there on that island. And as part of that baptism they recorded a testimony, Joshua sharing his testimony. And Joshua's testimony uh, is, is certainly influenced by the passing, by the grief that Joshua has experienced over the last two years of the passing of his father, Larry. It's interesting, in that testimony that Joshua shares, that Margaret allowed me to watch, Joshua says this, referring to his father's death, Larry's death, Joshua says, after his death, it really tested me in many ways. I could either turn away from God or draw near to him. And I chose to draw near. Church, Jesus, the risen Savior, Gives us hope in our grief. He he meets us in our grief. And he is ready and willing to show himself to us. To lovingly call us by name. Did you know that Jesus knows your name? We, We forget one another's names, don't we? But Jesus has not forgotten your name. And what great hope that gives us. The Apostle Paul says... That we do not grieve like the rest of mankind. Why? Because we have hope. Even this morning, I'm talking to Bill Thomas. I learned that Bill Thomas's mother recently passed away. And this is a, a helpful and important reminder to Bill. Bill, remember that there is great hope in your grief. To believe in the risen Savior, the one who provides hope in our grief. And John says, Mary saw it. Mary returns to the, to the disciples and she says, I have seen the Lord. Well, then we go on and we see, we see the next set of eyewitnesses where Jesus, the risen Savior, gives us peace in our fear. And these second eyewitnesses were the disciples here in verses 19 through 23. Follow along with me as I read these verses. On the evening of that first day, so that would be Sunday evening, that would be tonight, 2,000 years ago, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. Let me just continue reading for a little bit more. Now, now Thomas, into verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe a week later, his disciples were in the home again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and, and he said, and he said this a third time, he said, peace be with you. At this point, right, on this Sunday evening of that resurrection day, at this point we find the disciples, there are huddled together, attempting to process all that had just occurred in the past few hours, in the past several days Think of it, on, on, that, on that Thursday, having dinner with Jesus. On that uh, Friday, Thursday night, into the Friday, the trial, the ex- execution, Jesus' death. Then on that Saturday, a, a day of great questioning. Then on, on that third day, on that Sunday morning, the discovery, an empty tomb, the proclamation by Mary Magdalene that Jesus is alive. Imagine all oh, that's swirling around in their heads. And so later that Sunday evening, they're huddled together. And what, what the Bible tells us that they were fearful of the Jewish leaders. And so what did they do? They did something that you and I, all, all of us would do. What did they do? They locked the doors. In verse 19, what do we see? We see how Jesus appears before them. And Jesus provides relief to them by offering peace to them. Understand that this was not the first time Jesus offered his peace to to the disciples. In fact, earlier in John's gospel, in John 16 and in John 14, and then also in John 16, Jesus offers his peace to them. John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not what? Maybe you know the end of it. And do not be troubled. Afraid. The disciples are filled with fear. Jesus offers to them peace. This peace is is the shalom of the Old Testament. It's an internal peace that does not take away the, 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 the trouble that surrounds you. The trouble still is there, but instead it gives you a peace in the midst amid the trouble. As you read the words, as, as you think about peace, as you think about the, the, the idea of having peace in the midst of a troubled world, you quickly come to realize how desperately even our hearts long for that peace. Does your heart ever long for peace? We live in a world filled with fear, don't we? In fact, at times we are like the disciples. who, who We lock the doors behind us. Why do you lock your doors at night? Well, you value your TV, (laughs) but you're fearful, aren't you? You're fearful. You're afraid. So we we lock our doors behind us. We try to keep the troubles of this world on the outside, and the peace that is offered to us by Christ is not dependent on the circumstances of the world. This peace does not remove the trouble from our lives, but rather it gives us that peace in the middle of troubles. The other evening uh, was on Wednesday night. How many of you all were, were around here for all that excitement on Wednesday night, right? That was excitement like we've had, we haven't had in some time. My wife was hosting a Bible study, and she had several ladies uh, there for the Bible study, and they were in a, they were actually, we have a garage that's separated from our house, and, and so they were doing the Bible study there in the upper room of the garage. That just sounds really spiritual, the <laughs> upper room of the garage. And they were doing a Bible study across the driveway, and, and the children and I had been out working in the garden, and as the storm is rolling in, I'm not, we're not paying attention to the weather or the news, we just saw the storm coming in, and so we, as it started to rain, we came inside, and then all of a sudden, the phone started going off, and we were getting this, this emergency alert, and, and, uh, and it said severe thunderstorm, it's like 30 seconds later, the phone goes crazy again, and it says tornado warning, at that point, our, our electricity went out, and so I said, kids down to the basement, and so I'm thinking I need to get the ladies over here from and, and the rain is just just going sideways. Allie Kidd was there. She's an eyewitness, if you don't believe me to go ask her. <laughs> uh, and and I think her clothes are probably still wet from, from walking across. And, and so I'm standing there at the door with my flashlight just to try to direct them because you couldn't see. And, and Allie is following the light. There's a spiritual application there too. She's following the light. And, and Allie and Michelle and Karen and Maren, they all come in. They all go down to the basement. And uh, we're huddled down there, really not knowing what's going on. And... Um, because we didn't, power was out, we didn't have very good electrical, uh, um, internet connectivity, right? How'd they make it in the old days, I don't know. <laughs> but, but I, as we're sitting there, I asked the group, I threw it out to, to us all, and our children were all down there, and, and, do, and Nico the dog, and I said, I said uh, who would like to pray? And our neighbor, Karen, uh, her hand immediately went up. And now, like, you have to understand that was not a question of I'm taking a vote, who, how many of us would like to pray, okay? That was a question of who would actually like to do the praying. And so when I said, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm trying to get a volunteer who, who wants to actually do the praying. I said, who would like to pray? And Karen's hand shot right up. She said, oh, I would like to pray. And I said, okay, let's, all go, let's, let's go ahead, kids. Uh, Karen's going to pray. And she looked at me with big eyes. She said, oh, no. She said, I want us, I, I, I want to pray, but I want you to pray. <laughs> it's interesting when you're in the middle and w- when you're huddled with fear, when we find ourselves hiding in fear, We're longing for something outside of ourselves to watch over us, to bring us peace. And who do we turn to? We turn to God. We turn to the Lord. Hear me on this. All that we fear in this world, Michael Fay did it so well, already explaining to us, all that we fear in this world has already been defeated by Jesus. Jesus. You see, when Jesus declares peace to these disciples who are huddled in fear, when Jesus declares peace or instructs us to fear not, we can be assured that he he has the authority to make such a proclamation. Jesus has faced and defeated all the forces that destroy the peace of man. As Jesus said, peace be with you, he was doing much, much more than just uttering some sort of wishful desire. Jesus is making a declaration. Jesus is offering to us almost a benediction, a prayer for the road. He was imparting a blessing. Because of the risen Savior, Jesus offers to us peace in our fear. And then you notice, in, there in verses 21 and through 23, Jesus then commissions the disciples to go out. He says, leave the safety and the security of the locked doors. He says, and take the news of this resurrection into the world and the peace of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will, will go with you, will, will guard and protect you and be willing to give your life so that others too may believe in the risen Savior. There's no need to cower in fear. Because the risen Savior is victorious. So he gives us peace and fear. And then the third eyewitness account is that of assurance in our doubt. And we've met him already. It's Thomas. Let's look again and I'll read that portion all the way through verse 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, clearly they and we all are slow learners, aren't they? Aren't we? Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Church, if you've believed in the risen Savior, the last part of verse 29 is talking about you. Blessed you too, Elijah. You're exactly right. Man, that got him awake, didn't it? Me? He's talking about us. Those who have not seen, but based on the eyewitness testimony of others, what have we done? We've believed. Now, how can we fault Thomas for his, his response? Considering the circumstances that Thomas and the other disciples endured over the previous 36 hours, 48 hours or more, responding in doubt as Thomas did, I think for a lot of us would probably only be a natural response Thomas, who was buried in grief and burdened by fear, wanted to see physical proof. The Lord has allowed me to be a pastor now for 22 years. And I've done a lot of hospital visits, especially before COVID. I did a lot more hospital visits then. And it was always interesting, especially um, elderly folks. Anytime they were having a major surgery, I would go in and visit them after the surgery. And if it was like an open heart surgery... Uh, one gentleman in particular, when I was up in Indianapolis, I was very young and, and fresh in the ministry, uh, this, this gentleman had open-heart surgery. And back then, 20, 22 years ago, uh, the, the scars, the surgery incisions were a lot bigger than they are today. And this guy had open-heart surgery, and he was so proud of his scar. I had gone there, and he said, Michael, you want to see, see where they cut me open? And he take, opens it, and again, I get woozy around blood. And so the poor guy just about had to have the nurses pick me up off the floor. But scars are a reminder, aren't they? It's those scars that never go away. Scars are a reminder of a pain that has been endured. And the scars provided proof for Thomas. And Thomas wanted to see the scars. Church, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if he is your savior, one day, you will see those scars too. In verse 26 then, Thomas says, I want, Thomas says, I, I, I wanna see the scars, I, I wanna put my hand there on his hand, I wanna to touch his hands, I wanna to touch his side, see it all, and so there in verse 26, the following weekend, that would be next weekend, Uh, Jesus again appears before the disciples and like the previous time, the doors were locked. This time, Thomas is with them. I want you to notice something, how Thomas, Thomas who is filled with doubt, take note of this. Even though Thomas doubted, he did not isolate himself from those who believed. There are times when we can allow our doubt to discourage us. There are times when we can allow our doubt to even divide us, causing us to pull back from the very ones from whom we need to be with. Thomas, even in his doubt, he remained with those who believed. And so what a beautiful scene we've seen, we see as the Savior approaches The Savior approaches, Jesus approaches Thomas, not in rebuke, but in loving assurance. Jesus, who is filled with mercy and grace, he invites Thomas to touch the scars for himself and to be assured of that which is true, that Jesus is alive, that he is risen. Church, doubt is a normal Christian experience. It really is. All of us have either, we, either we've experienced doubt in the past, maybe you're experiencing doubt right now, or chances are you might experience doubt in the future. We tend to view doubt as an enemy. Even in some situations, maybe we, we, we view doubt as a sin. However, throughout the Bible, we read of many of the heroes of the faith who went through seasons of doubt. Church, God is incredibly patient and gracious with us in our doubting. And we see this here as Jesus approaches Thomas. He approaches him with great love, with grace and mercy. In fact, church, when we approach our doubts properly, with a sense of humility and not pride, our doubts can even lead us into a deeper and a closer walk with Jesus. Sometimes doubts have a way of preceding a deeper assurance. We see in verse 28, Thomas's doubt is replaced with assurance. My Lord and my God. Thomas responds in words of great belief. So, church, this morning, I wonder what are you doubting about God? Allow this eyewitness testimony recorded for us to cause you to seek the answers so that you too will be assured in your doubt, that you too will believe in the risen Savior. We find ourselves now at the fourth eyewitness. There at the end. Actually, all of chapter 21 records this eyewitness experience for us. The fourth eyewitness that we will focus on in particular is that of Peter. The backdrop of this fourth eyewitness of of Peter's account is the unresolved issue of Peter's threefold denial. You might remember, before Jesus' crucifixion, there during his arrest and his trial... He denies Jesus. He denies knowing Jesus, having a relationship with him. And for Peter, his denials were extremely devastating because prior to Jesus' trial and crucifixion, Peter claimed to have a devotion to Christ that exceeded that of all the other disciples. He said, no, I will never deny you. In today's language, we might say that, that Peter, he really blew it. He messed up big time. And I wonder, do you ever feel like a failure? Do you ever struggle? Do you ever struggle to have a purpose in your life because of your failures? Do you ever have high hopes? But then you just crash and burn. What about this? Do you ever think that maybe because of a past failure, you have somehow disqualified yourself from being used by God? Do you ever feel like a failure in your career? Maybe you are in the middle of what you would consider a failed marriage. Maybe there's this temptation that just seems to have a constant stranglehold on you and, and you feel like you're failing in your battle against that. Or maybe you're a teenager and you constantly feel like you're failing your parents' Expectations. See, in verses 1 through 14, we see Peter and the disciples returning to their boats to go fishing. It's almost at this point they just didn't know what else to do, right? Peter says, Oh, guys, I really don't know what else to do at this point. I made a mess of my situation with Jesus. So I'm just gonna go back to what I know what, what, what I used to do, and so let's just go out to the boat, and so they all follow him out there. It's almost as if at this point, Peter, he lacked purpose. And so after a long night of unsuccessful fishing, Jesus makes his appearance again. He shows himself to Peter and these disciples. And what does Jesus do? He works another miracle right before their eyes. Jesus is there along the shoreline. He's making them breakfast. Jesus then invites them to join him for breakfast. Jesus does all of this. It's like all in a day's work for Jesus, and it's not even mid-morning yet. Then it's in, verses, in verse 15, where Jesus then comes to Peter. And we see the heart of our Savior on clear display. Look at me, look, look there, follow along with me in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very, Jesus continues, he says, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. The heart of our Savior is on clear display. Again, another eyewitness account. Here we see the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who initiates the conversation with Peter. It is Jesus who desires to move Peter from being a defeated disciple to being a faithful shepherd. It's Jesus who meets us in the midst of our defeat and he welcomes us upon our return. The pursuit of our Savior is motivated by his great love for us. This morning, if you find yourself defeated, if you find yourself distant from the Lord, know for certain that it is the heart of our Savior, and it is His intention to pursue you and to bring you back into himself, unto Himself. A serious mistake or a significant sinful setback does not negate prior faith. Notice that Jesus never questions Peter's faith Rather, what is being questioned and tested is the depth of his commitment and his love to the Lord. Those who are truly saved will not lose your salvation because of a significant sinful, sinful setback. Now bear in mind, there will be consequences to your sin, sometimes immediate, sometimes long-term, sometimes both, but you're not losing your salvation. So we must not allow our past failures to undercut, undercut our future faithfulness. Don't buy into the lie that because you have failed in the past, that God has no interest in using you in the future. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus then gives Peter a very unusual word of comfort. And it's concerning Peter's future faithfulness. Jesus is welcoming Peter He is giving Peter a new purpose, a new hope in the midst of his failure. And it's here in verses 18 through 19 that Jesus foretells the means by which Peter will die. A martyr's death. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified. Possibly upside down as a martyr. And Jesus, there in those verses, Jesus provides Peter with this unusual word of comfort by helping him to know that despite his past failures, the rest of his life will be described by a future faithfulness. It's a faithfulness that endures, perseveres, and is preserved to the very end. Because Peter will be willing to die for his Savior. An eyewitness to the risen Savior, who experienced failure, but believed in the purpose that Jesus had for him. Jesus says, Peter, you'll be faithful. Because we know that only the faithful are willing to die for the faith. So Jesus calls Peter from a place of defeat and he invites him to enter into a life of obedience. And living a life of obedience, he dies a death of faithfulness. And because of our risen Savior, church, we can leave the past behind and we can walk forward in faithfulness. The risen Savior meets us in our failure. Church, if you're feeling like a failure this morning, there's a Savior for you. And his name is Jesus. And I want you to believe in the risen Savior, the one who gives purpose in our failures. So this resurrection Sunday morning, the question is, do you believe? Will you take these eyewitness accounts who saw something that maybe you can't Have never seen. But you believe it. Do you believe that the resurrected Savior, that the risen Savior met Mary in her grief and will meet you in your grief? Do you believe that the risen Savior will meet you in the midst of your fear? Do you believe that the risen Savior will meet you in your doubts? And to believe that Jesus also meets you in your failure. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that Jesus has risen from the dead, you can be saved. And this morning, I invite you to believe. Believe in the risen Savior who meets you exactly where you are. Would you bow your heads with me as I close in prayer? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these eyewitnesses. They saw something that we have not seen with our eyes. God, they are our eyes for us. They provide us a window into what is true. Lord, I thank you that Jesus met each of these eyewitnesses in the middle of struggles, struggles that many of us experience, struggles that have the tendency to cause us uh, to, to cause us to doubt, to cause us, even at times, to not believe. Father, I pray, Lord, right now in this moment that your Holy Spirit would work in all of our hearts this morning. And Father, I pray for those who have never believed in Jesus Christ, who have never believed in the risen Savior, that this morning would be that day. That even now, in their heart, where they sit, that they would believe in the risen Savior, or those who are watching us online, Father, that they would believe in the risen Savior. And Father, then that they would move to confess it with their mouth. That they would tell someone, today I believed. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work. In Jesus' name, amen.